Hello and welcome to the Standing for Truth Ministries podcast. I'm your host, Donnie Bedinsky, and together we will venture on a journey to explore the truth of biblical creation. Our ministry is also available on YouTube, so please search Standing for Truth and get access to the video versions of our programs. I'm Donnie Bedinsky, and as usual, stay awesome and trust in the truth of God's Word. Welcome to Standing for Truth. I am your host, Donnie. And tonight we have an epic, epic debate. This is the much anticipated debate between Randall Rouser and CJ Cox. They will be debating the important question, did God command the slaughter of the Canaanites? Uh, gentlemen, uh, Randall and CJ, thanks so much for giving us your time for this important debate. Good to be here. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. I appreciate it. Uh, real quick, I want to uh, thank everybody in the audience. I want to thank them for their patience. Uh, we worked out any bugs before we went live, so we're going to make sure we have a, a smooth show. Uh, before we kind of get to know the debaters a little bit and break the ice, I do want to uh, go over a couple reminders for everybody. Uh, next month on the 12th, we've got uh, a debate between Matt Slick and Dr. Shabir Ali. Is God one or three divine persons? We actually have a couple epic uh, debates focusing on the Trinity next month because we're going to have, again, Matt Slick here debating Taylor Stewart. Does the Bible teach the doctrine of the Trinity? Also this week, on Thursday, we're going to have uh, CJ Cox back here debating Kent Hoven on end times theology, pre-tribulation rapture versus post-tribulation rapture. So everybody, please check the upcoming live stream section on the YouTube channel or the event section on our website, standingfortruthministries.com for all your uh, reminders and updates. So that being said, uh, again, Randall and CJ, thanks for being here. Uh, why don't we kind of get to know you guys a little bit? Uh, Randall, it's your first time here on the channel. I appreciate it. Uh, a little bit about yourself. Uh, well, thanks for having me. First of all, Donnie, I'm a professor at Taylor Seminary in Edmonton, Canada, where I've been for 18 years. I teach in the area of theology, apologetics, worldview, and church history. I've written 10 books, co-written three others. And my most recent book, which is quite germane to this topic, is Jesus Loves Canaanites. You can buy it at fine bookstores everywhere, as long as they're Amazon. <laughs> Awesome. I've uh, I've linked that, uh, Randall, in the description box as well for people who are uh, interested. So thanks again uh, for being here, Randall. And CJ, uh, thank you as well for being here again. You've been here uh, numerous times. Uh, a little bit about yourself, what's going on over at your channel and how you been? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thank you very much. Doing very well here today. I uh, appreciate you um, hosting this also. I'll obviously go through all that in my opening again, but I'm um, all doing pretty well. Uh, obviously, for those who don't know, my name is CJ Cox. I do a uh, YouTube podcast, um, too, actually, but the one that is relevant to our conversation today is an unapologetics, uh, Christian apologetics podcast on the Synagogue YouTube channel. Um, our flavor, if you will, is apologetics from a fundamentalist yet intellectual standpoint, trying to kind of bleed those two together. And also, in, in a sense, kind of trying to reappropriate the term uh, fundamentalist because it's kind of an insult in the modern day. And I frankly don't think that it is. Uh, so that's sort of the whole uh, shtick there, if you will. Do a lot of debates, open rooms, that kind of stuff. I'm doing a show tomorrow morning that's going to be really fun, actually. 
um, where I'm going to start a series of response videos to um, to YouTubers who are doing like history and religion and stuff, but aren't like in apologetics, like they're not atheist or Christian, but just general history, general religion kind of stuff. Um, and that's going to start tomorrow with a, a response to did Moses exist from useful charts. So if anybody's interested in that, uh, definitely be sure to check that out. Uh, but that's what's going on for me. Well, I appreciate that, CJ. I appreciate the introductions uh, from the both of you, Randall and CJ. So real quick, we'll go through the uh, format for the evening. So we've got a formal debate. We've got uh, between 10 and 12 minute opening statements. Uh, CJ is in the affirmative tonight, so he will be starting. Then we're going to have roughly five to seven minute rebuttals, followed by 10 minute cross exams. So since CJ is starting the debate with his opening statement, we'll have CJ uh, cross examine uh, Randall first, and then we'll uh, give Randall uh, 10 minutes to cross examine CJ. Then we're going to have five minute closing statements. And then this is where we get you guys in the audience involved. We're going to have a roughly 25 minute audience Q&A. So please make sure you're tagging me at Standing for Truth with your questions. That way I won't miss them. So that being said, why don't we get right into the fun. Uh, CJ, I will give you the floor. Uh, once you reach the nine minute mark, I'll give you a warning. Hey, CJ, you're at nine minutes and you get up to 12 minutes. So you'll know to kind of start slowly wrapping it up at that point. Um, whenever you're ready, CJ. Absolutely. Uh, just one second. I'm going to go ahead and just drop something here. All right. So um, shalom to everybody and blessings to you all in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, also, uh, definitely want to say uh, hogs mayak to anybody who is celebrating Sukkot still. Uh, I know this is the second to last day of it, but nonetheless, want to definitely wish a joyous Sukkot to all of you who are celebrating today. Um, I would also like to, of course, uh, thank SFT for hosting the debate and Mr. Rouser for agreeing to discuss this uh, vital issue with me. Uh, and of course, I want to give a big thanks to the audience for watching the debate, and I hope it's going to be educational and edifying for you all, and that we may glorify the Lord in our discussion, because of course, that is the reason for being here today. Uh, we're here to discuss whether or not God literally commanded the slaughter of the Canaanites, as we read in the book of Deuteronomy and Joshua, as well as other places. Uh, and I will be taking the affirmative position, namely that he did, in fact, command this conquest to take place, and is uh, excuse me, exactly as described uh, in the scriptures. Uh, I'd like to get right to the point uh, for believing these, so uh, or for believing this rather. Um, and so I'd like to start with a couple of these scriptures um, and what they have to say about Canaan and the conquest and all that kind of stuff. And I apologize for being a little bit jumpy here at the moment, but we'll get right into this. Uh, our first couple of scriptures are not going to be ones which you initially consider, um, but you will, I am certain, quickly see that they're uh, very relevant to tonight's debate. And of course, they will be talking about Canaan and Canaan's descendants, because of course Canaan is originally a person in the book of Genesis. So we'll start with the book of Genesis. In chapter 9, verses 20 through 27, we uh, read, excuse me, and Noah began to be a farmer, and he planted a vineyard. Uh, then he drank of the wine and was drunk and became uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. So Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. And he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants he shall be to his brethren. And he said, 
Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant, end quote. Here we see in the first, and traditionally at least, the earliest book of the Bible, that Canaan and his descendants, the Canaanites, are cursed to be servants of servants. Uh, while we have no mention of conquest quite yet, we see clearly God's disposition and plan for national Canaan, and this says nothing about individuals within the tribe of Canaan. Um, they are cursed, and the rest of Scripture is going to clearly manifest precisely that. Uh, later in the same book, uh, chapter 50, verses 24 to 25, we'll read, Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up, up uh, out of this land, excuse me, to the land that he promised an oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Abraham made the Israelites swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. Real briefly, jumping to Exodus 3, 7 through 10, we read, And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt, and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows, and I am come down to deliver them out of the land of the Egypt, out of the hand of the Egyptians, excuse me, and to bring them up out of the land unto a good land and a large, uh, unto a land flowing with milk and honey, unto the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, and the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Now, therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come unto me, and I have also seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people to Israel out of Egypt. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, here we see plainly, uh, first Joseph telling his brothers, and second God telling Moses outright, that the Israelites will be taken to a land that is currently occupied by other people groups, and that they will possess it. Again, we do not see any mention of war quite yet, but one could certainly be safe in assuming that the Israelites and indeed God himself has slash have no intentions to share the land with Canaan's pagans. And there are other pas uh, passages which are going to communicate the same, but of course scripture gets much more specific than these passages here. And as we read on, we will see that we don't have to actually assume anything at all. In Deuteronomy 7 verses 1 through 5, we see, When the Lord thy God shall bring thee unto the land whither thou goest to possess it, and has cast out many nations before thee, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites, and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than thou. And when the Lord thy God shall deliver them before thee, thou shalt smite them and utterly destroy them. Thou shalt make no covenant with them, nor show any mercy unto them. Uh, neither shalt thou make marriages with them. Thy daughters uh, thou shalt not give unto his sons, nor his daughters shalt thou take unto thy son. Uh, for they shall, excuse me, for they will turn away thy God from following me, that they may serve other gods. So will the anger of the Lord be kindled against you? Notice this is not something specific to Canaan, but if uh, Israel does the same thing, we will see that God's anger is kindled against them uh, and destroy thee suddenly. But thus shall ye deal with them. Ye shall destroy their altars and break down their images and cut down their groves and burn their graven images with fire and quote. Uh, we're going to see again in chapter 20, verses 16 through 18 of the same book, Deuteronomy. Uh, after going through what the Israelite armies are to do when going against a city outside of Israel or Canaan, God tells, um, excuse me, God tells us what the army is to do inside uh, the land of Canaan if they are fighting a city there. We read, but of the cities of these people, which the Lord thy God doth give thee, or doth give thee, excuse me, for an inheritance, thou shalt save alive nothing that breatheth. But thou shalt utterly destroy them, namely the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, and the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, as the Lord God hath commanded thee. 
that they teach you not to do after the, all their abominations, which they have done unto their gods, so should you sin against the Lord your God. Uh, Deuteronomy is painfully clear in these instances. Uh, while there is to be mercy shown to those who are outside of the land, by direct contrast, those inside of the land are to be utterly destroyed. It is said in plain language that no mercy is to be shown unto them. And utterly destroyed in the Hebrew, fun fact, is the word haram. It has a literal translation of ban, like as in banning alcohol from a certain venue. Uh, so as if the words utterly destroy weren't already clear enough, uh, the actual Hebrew word being used here is ban, like you're banning them from existence. It's pretty uh, brutal to think about, actually. Um, and God gives us the reasons here why such a thing is going to occur. Uh, the inhabitants of the land are to be wiped out, not just because they live in a land promised to the descendants of Israel, uh, not simply because there is a curse on Canaan from almost a thousand years back, not only because God has a plan set in motion, and I, as somebody who believes in a, a divine eternal decree, believe that that was set in motion before the uh, foundation of the world, but none of those reasons are the or the sole reason um, for God deciding that, deciding, excuse me, that he is going to destroy them. Um, but rather, the reason that he is going to destroy them is because their actions are sinful, or to be more accurate, abominations. In other words, Canaan is being judged by the Lord. The self-same way we will see people judged uh, in hellfire, the self-same way we see people judged by death penalty in the, under the law of Moses, the same way we see people judged in Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, so on and so forth. Um now, the uh, last scripture we're going to look at is in Joshua. Now, in Joshua, we see over and over and over again, uh, almost ad nauseum, um, that Israel was commanded to destroy the Canaanite peoples. And we see that they did destroy them also in the book of Joshua. And then we also see at the end of the book of Joshua, them remembering that they had just gone about destroying them. So we literally see, hey, we're going to do it in the future. Hey, we're currently in the process of it. Hey, remember when we did that, right? All in the book of Joshua. Uh, but something that really hammers the uh, whole point home very strongly, in my opinion, is chapter 11, verse 20, where we read the following. For it was of the Lord to harden their hearts, talking of Canaan, that they should come against Israel in battle, that he might destroy them utterly, and that they might have no favor, but that he might destroy them as the Lord commanded Moses. Uh, this is a very intriguing verse, if you ask me. Uh, in the verse we see plainly, as plain as anything could possibly be communicated, that not only was it God's intention that they be shown no favor and be utterly destroyed, but he even took the initiative to actively Israel would not be tempted to make peace with them, but would obliterate them entirely. Why? Because the Lord commanded Moses to obliterate them entirely. And why did the Lord command Moses to obliterate them entirely? Because of the abominations of Canaan. There is much, much more to be said on this issue, and I have no doubt that we will get into the whys and how we know this is inspired of God and the exhaustive language used um, that eliminates the possibility of hyperbole, the consequences of going against what Scripture says here, and, of course, much, much more. But minutes, time is limited, uh, so I do want to go ahead and wrap up the opening statement here. Uh, so I'll end my opening statement with this. The only way one could possibly argue that God did not command the judgment of the Canaanites would be to argue effectively that the Old Testament, or specifically the Torah, Joshua, and Judges, which is a book we did not actually get into yet, are not the inspired word of God as we currently understand it. Um, I personally would take the position that all scripture is inspired of God. It is God-breathed, of course. 
um, that it is profitable for reproof and for teaching. And of course, the other things that Paul is going to list for us, that the Old Testament is a taskmaster that leads us to Christ and that Jesus is fulfilling prophecies that are set in stone infallibly in the Old Testament and specifically in books like the Torah and Joshua. Um, so with that, I will go ahead and save anything else for um, the responses and I will yield my time. All right. I appreciate that, uh, CJ. That was your opening statement, roughly uh, 10 or 11 minutes. Uh, Randall, we're going to hand it over to you whenever you're ready. You also have between uh, 10 and 12 minutes. Okay. Our debate topic concerns the question, did God command the slaughter of the Canaanites? I'm going to argue God did not. Slaughter is defined as the indiscriminate killing of large numbers of human beings and or animals. There are biblical passages that on a apparent plain reading describe God as commanding the indiscriminate killing of large numbers of Canaanites, um, as well as the Israelites carrying it out. CJ went through those texts. I won't bother with that. But the matters are far more complicated than that. For a Christian can have many good reasons to reject the prima facie plain reading of God's actions as described in the biblical text. For example, the plain reading of Joshua 10.13 is that God made the sun stand still while the Israelites were in battle, a description prefaced on an ancient Near Eastern understanding of the earth as fixed and the sun moving around it. But be beginning in the 17th century, scientists recognized that the earth revolves around the sun, and that scientific advance in turn required a revision of the plain reading of Joshua 10. Second example. Exodus 32, 9-14 describes God telling Moses he is going to destroy the Israelites. But Moses reminds God of his covenant and calms him down so that we read in verse 14 that God repents, Hebrew word nahem. Christian theologians widely interpret descriptions like this non-literally because God is omniscient and morally perfect. He cannot literally change his mind, lose his temper, or repent. Third example, Psalm 37, 13 says the Lord laughs at the wicked for he knows their day is coming. But Ezekiel 18, 23 says God takes no delight in the death of anyone, a teaching resoundingly affirmed in the New Testament. Thus, there are many reasons, including scientific, theological, and biblical, that one might have to reject a prima facie plain reading. Before going into my argument proper, I also want to say a word about orthodoxy. In 1981, G.W. Ramsey published his book, The Quest for the Historical Israel, in which he summarized the powerful archaeological evidence against the historicity of the Canaanite conquest. And then he famously asked, if Jericho is not raised, R-A-Z-E-D, is our faith in vain? The answer is an emphatic no. Christian faith rests not on Jericho raised, but on Christ raised, a point undergirded in the Apostles' Creed and the creeds of the ecumenical councils. Christian orthodoxy is essentially committed to the triune God, creation, fall, incarnation, atonement, Christ's resurrection, ascension, return, general resurrection, and new creation. It does not require assent to the claim that God literally commanded the slaughter of the Canaanites. And so we are free to consider reasons to reject the prima facie plain reading of these passages without violating Christian orthodoxy. In my remaining time, I will briefly summarize four reasons to reject that plain reading. History, morality, Christology, and scripture. Reason one, history. While a popular early tradition of the church attributed authorship of the Pentateuch to Moses and Joshua to the book that bears his name, today these claims are rejected by a consensus of biblical scholars. Instead, it is widely accepted that the so-called Deuteronomic history that encompasses Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings 
was likely compiled by one or more redactors beginning in the period of the Josianic reforms of the 600s BCE and extending into the exilic period up to a century later. Given that the conquest of Canaan is commonly dated to about 1280 BCE, this means that the record of God's command to slaughter Canaanites was written down approximately 700 years after the alleged events occurred. Granted, one may assume these redacted texts were based on oral traditions and perhaps earlier written fragments, but the fact remains that the Deuteronomic history as we have it was composed centuries after the events it records. To be sure, a time gap would not present an insuperable problem if the narrative was independently confirmed in period archaeology and supporting texts, but it is not. Kathleen Kenyon established in the 1950s in her archaeological dig that the walls of Jericho were destroyed about two centuries before the alleged events occurred. Scholars have recognized that the text is not supported by the archaeological record. Even the conservative NIV Archaeological Study Bible accepts that Kenyon's work presents a serious problem for the biblical account. In their influential study, The Bible Unearthed, Finkelstein and Silberman summarized the problem. Quote, the cities of Canaan were unfortified and there were no walls that could have come tumbling down. In the case of Jericho, there was no trace of a settlement of any kind in the 13th century BCE, and the earlier late Bronze Age settlement dating to the 14th century BCE was small, poor, insignificant, and unfortified. There was also no sign of destruction. Thus, the famous scene of the Israelites' force, forces marching around the walled town with the Ark of the Covenant, causing Jericho's mighty walls to collapse by the blowing of their war trumpets, was, to put it simply, a romantic mirage. A Finkelstein and Silberman point out that Canaan at the time was an economically depleted region controlled by Egypt with not more than 100,000 people. Suffice it to say, it is highly unlikely that the Egyptian garrisons throughout the territory would have remained on the sidelines as a group of refugees from Egypt wreaked havoc throughout the province of Canaan. And it is inconceivable that the destruction of so many loyal vassal cities by the invaders would have left absolutely no trace in the extensive records of the Egyptian empire. Reason two, morality. In my book, Jesus Loves Canaanites, I argue the closest modern analog for the events described in the Joshua narrative is the 1994 genocide of uh, Tutsis by Hutus in Rwanda. Both modern Hutus and ancient Israelites believed another distinct group, Canaanites, Tutsis, were immoral and corrupt and that they had to be killed and removed from the land en masse. Furthermore, each group believed they had the divine approval to act, so they used sharp implements. Hutus used machetes and masu, the Israelites used swords and spears, and they systematically massacred civilians, hacking, bludgeoning, dismembering, disemboweling, weeping mothers, infants, children, the elderly, physically handicapped, and whomever else they could catch. Christians recognize that the genocidal slaughter of Rwanda is the embodiment of evil and inhumanity. They do not qualify their moral judgment to say it is only wrong if God didn't command it. Rather, their moral perception, their conscience, informs them that God would never command such atrocities in the first place. The genocidal slaughter of Canaanites described in Joshua 6 and 8 is an ancient equivalent of Rwanda. If the token genocidal slaughter of Rwanda is intrinsically immoral, as it surely is, then all token examples are immoral, including that of ancient Canaan. Reason three, Christology. Jesus came to fulfill the law, Matthew 5.17, which includes challenging received interpretations of the law. For example, one of the fundamental aspects of the law is the distinction between clean and unclean foods. Pious Jews believe the dietary laws to be so essential that in 2 Maccabees 7, we read of seven young men, all brothers, who submitted to having their tongues cut out, limbs cut off, and being skinned alive rather than to be forced to eat pork in violation of the law. 
But then Jesus comes along in Mark 7, 19 and declares all foods clean. The fulfillment of the law brings with it a radical challenge to received interpretations. And so it is with violence. While the Torah teaches an eye for an eye, in Matthew 5, 38 to 48, Jesus calls us to turn the other cheek, a teaching echoed by Paul in Romans 10, 12, 14. While the imprecatory psalmist calls for hatred of enemies, Jesus calls us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. When Peter, in a bold attempt to be magnanimous, proposes forgiving our enemies up to seven times, Jesus responds by upping the bar to 77 times. The point, of course, is that you don't stop forgiving. As Grant Osborne points out, Jesus is probably alluding to Genesis 4.24, where Lamech famously boasts of his 77-fold vengeful spirit, in which he will seek vengeance on those who offend against him. Osborne observes, quote, Lamech celebrated vengeance, Jesus abrogates it altogether. In John 8, a woman caught in adultery is brought to Jesus. According to Torah, she should be stoned to death, but Jesus says, let he who is without sin throw the first stone. In Luke 9, when Jesus, is, when Jesus is rejected by Samaritans, James and John ask if they should call down fire from heaven to judge the wretches, but Jesus instead rebukes them, and they continue on their way. And when Jesus' followers suggest violence to defend him, he rebukes them. Luke twenty-two forty-nine and 50, um, John 18, 11. His entire cruciform life embodied peace and service, a call that extends to his followers. Take up your cross daily. What about the Canaanites? Well, in Matthew 15, 21 to 28, Jesus has an encounter with a Canaanite woman who has the temerity to ask him for healing for her demon-possessed daughter. As Bruner writes, to readers of the Hebrew scriptures, the adjective Canaanite means everything dangerous to the faith of Israel. At first blush, Jesus seems to affirm that view as he refers to her and her daughter as dogs. But then something extraordinary happens. The woman is undeterred by this rebuff, instead offering the perfect response. Even dogs receive crumbs from the master's table. And lest one think that by offering that quick-witted reply she has shown up the master, Jesus's clear delight at her response reveals the truth. She has risen to the challenge as he knew she would. R.T. France writes, In refusing to, re to accept the traditional Jewish exclusion of Gentiles from the grace of God, she has shown a truly prophetic grasp of the new perspective of the kingdom of heaven. Finally, scripture. In 2 Timothy 4, or 3, 14 to 17, Paul explains the purpose of scripture as being to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus by teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so we are thoroughly equipped for every good work. Jesus himself summarized the law and prophets as loving God and loving one's neighbor as oneself, where neighbor is expanded to include those traditionally viewed as enemies and outsiders, Gentiles, tax collectors, adulterers, Samaritans, and Canaanites. With that in mind, Augustine stated that we ought always to interpret scripture so as to increase love of God and neighbor. Those who believe God commanded the Canaanite genocide defend their reading by dehumanizing and othering an entire human community, the Canaanites, as a disease, a pestilence, a cancer. They seek to cauterize our compassion as they endorse the moral goodness of slaughtering infants in God's name. This is an utter perversion of the scriptural call to love our neighbor, and thus the purpose of scripture itself reveals uh, requires us to reject that interpretation. To conclude, many Christians wrestle with the cognitive dissonance at the heart of their faith. They believe they are called to show love and mercy and compassion and to humanize outsiders and enemies. And yet the Canaanite conquest demands that we otherize, humanize, dehumanize, and cauterize our feelings of love, mercy, and compassion. No Christian should feel obliged to live with that cognitive dissonance. In my opening statement, I have explained how one can reject the plain reading of a text 
and how doing so in this case does not affect Christian orthodoxy. Next, I presented four powerful reasons for doing so in this case, history, morality, Christology, and scripture. For those reasons, I believe Christians can and should conclude that God did not command the slaughter of the Canaanites. All right. Perfect timing, uh, Randall. I appreciate that. Uh, thank you both for your opening statements, both clear and concise. Some great points to discuss. Uh, now we are moving on to the five to seven minute uh, rebuttal, uninterrupted rebuttal. So we're going to hand it over to uh, CJ. CJ, whenever you're ready, uh, the floor is yours and I can start your timer. All right, thank you. <clears throat> All right, so I'll go ahead and jump right into it. Had a couple of very interesting points brought up, more than a couple. Um, very interesting points brought up. Uh, so I want to see if I can get to as many as possible, of course. Um, the first thing to look at is um, grounds for rejecting the plain reading of the text. Um, now, I, I want to point out briefly before I get into this that there are certainly instances in any text, literally every single text in existence, um, where you can reject at least some instances of a literal reading of the text because it is simply natural for human beings to speak in ways where they will use hyperbole, where they will use some level of slang, where they will use term in a less than literal way or in a colloquially understood way uh, or uh, so, uh, you know different sort of things like that. So. Uh, when we say that we are interpreting the text literally, um, it is better, actually, I think face value, something that uh, Mr. Rouse was talking about there, actually is a better uh, way to um, to uh, communicate what it is that we're actually trying to do, right? Uh, because sarcasm can sometimes be obvious at face value, or when you are using words in a non-literal fashion, it can be obvious at face value, right? The colloquial understanding is very obvious sometimes at face value, um, but it's not necessarily literal, right? So I do just want to point that out very briefly. But if we're just going with the uh, rejecting the uh, text's face value understandings, I would say that we do have quite a bit of problems, uh, specifically as it pertains to the slaughter of the Canaanites. Uh, we have something that is repeated. I gave at least three of the books in the Torah, namely Genesis, Exodus, and Deuteronomy. Uh, but it is also found in Leviticus and Numbers. You're also going to find it in Joshua, as we read. You're also going to find it in Judges. Uh, and you see calls back to it constantly uh, for example, in, um, you know, uh, what we see in Samuel, uh, where we, and Samuel, to be fair, I, let me explain how it's a callback. Uh, usage of the Haram in 1 Samuel 15 is calling back to the method of conquest that was used by Joshua. And we have a uh, very um, in-depth explanation there uh, as to what exactly it means, right? Where not only does he say you need to, you know, go through all the different uh, categories of people, even the animals, but then when we see Saul come back actually with some of the animals and the king, uh, he's actually chastised and the kingdom is taken from him. In other words, 1 Samuel 15 is making the point that the haram is absolutely something that is literally meant, so literal in fact that Saul can get his kingdom taken away from it or for it. But if we have the exact same thing happening over here in Joshua, Deuteronomy, right, uh, where we uh, see God is commanding the haram uh, on the Canaanites, then uh, what we should uh, at least ascertain, at least what I think we should ascertain from this is that God is not only literally commanding Joshua to do these things, but that if Joshua did not do these things, he'd actually be held accountable for not doing these things, which by the way, we do actually happen to find that in the Torah itself. Why are the Israelites wandering in the wilderness of sin for 40 years? Well, because they refused to go into the land and possess it as the Lord commanded Moses. Um, the reason Caleb and Joshua are allowed into the land uh, is because they actually did claim the promise and did want to go 
forward and take the land, right? So not only are we seeing that this is um, literal in this passage and in other passages when we see the self-same command, but also in the self-same passage, we see just like we saw in 1 Samuel 15, um, that there is actually consequences for not following through with this, right? Uh, that the Lord will actually hold you accountable, will punish you for not going through with this. The other problem here, of course, is that we actually create a huge litany of issues for Jesus Christ himself, um, not least of which is the fact that he himself claims authorship of at least some of the Torah um, to Moses. He says, Moses wrote about me. He calls the law, the law of Moses. Um, but on top of that, we also have the question of certain things that uh, Jesus is said to uh, fulfill, right? For example, he is said to be the prophet like unto Moses in Deuteronomy 18. Well, Deuteronomy 18 is not necessarily inspired of God and cannot be trusted. Then he's the prophet like unto who exactly? I'm not sure what exactly he's trying to fulfill here. Uh, if Genesis 3 is uh, prophesying the uh, Messiah is going to uh, pierce or crush or, or bruise or whatever you happen to translate it as the serpent's head, uh, while ha himself having a bruised heel, right? Well, if Genesis isn't something that we can actually trust as literal prophetic scripture, then I don't, I don't know actually if that occurred, right? Is Jesus really fulfilling that? That's an open question. Uh, we see typology with Joshua, Joshua or Yehoshua, the diminutive form of Yehoshua. Fun fact is Yeshua, transliterated into English, is Jesus. Yehoshua actually takes the Israelite people into the promised land not Moshe or the Torah or the law as another way to put it, right? There's clear typology there that the law itself does not save you, but that it is uh, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, right? Yeshua or uh, Yehovah saves, which is actually what that means, fun fact. Um, technically, more literally, it's Yehovah's salvation. But nonetheless, the point is all the same, right? He is the one who leads you into the salvation or into salvation, into the promised land, not the law of Moses. But if that's not actually a story that we can... Uh, take at at, um, at face value, right? In other words, if it's not trying to communicate to us that this actually did occur, that there actually was a um, a lack of the uh, of uh, Moses's ability to go in there because of uh, number one, his um, well, excuse me, you got to differentiate for a couple things here, and I'm getting ahead of myself, right? Because you have uh, with Moses's people, they're not allowed to go in, obviously, because they wouldn't fulfill the command. But in the case of Moses, and this is how you can uh, how you know that this has to be taken literally, right? Uh, notice Moses is actually withheld from the promised land because of one simple problem, and that is that he struck the rock rather than commanded water to come one forth from the rock as the Lord had commanded him. Why is that such a big deal when we have such a forgiving God? Even throughout the Torah, he's, he appears to be incredibly forgiving. He forgives Joseph's brothers. He forgives Abraham. He forgives Isaac numerous times, you know, so on and so forth. Um, why does he not appear to be forgiving in this particular instance? Well, because Moses is, represented, uh, is a representative of the law itself, right? And if Moses is not perfect, which of course no man is, Moses cannot enter into the promised land because by the law you cannot enter into the promised land unless you keep all of the law. This is something Paul lays out very clearly for us. So we see in Moses's life typology that actually describes the entire gospel message, right? And we're just going to go ahead and discount that as saying, well, none of this is actually real. It didn't really happen. It's all just folklore and stories. The other thing I would like to point out um, is that I, I very much would take issue with the dating. I know that that is the consensus understanding. Thank you. I'll be, I'll be very brief with this. I know that the consensus understanding is that we did not have any writings from Moses until roughly 700 years later, but I personally do not believe that. And hopefully we'll be able to get into a little bit of that because that's certainly important for us. But nonetheless, I'm going to yield my time there. All right. Well, that is, uh, 
There we go. That was uh, seven minutes. So we're going to hand it over to uh, Randall. You also have uh, up to seven minutes whenever you're ready. Excellent. All right. So um, CJ, at the end of his opening statement, he said that um, basically what I would be forced to do is reject the these texts as the inspired word of God. Uh, that's flatly incorrect. Um, so in Jesus Loves Canaanites, I explain at some length the concept of plenary inspiration. Uh, and I know that plenary inspiration is ultimately, as Paul points out in 2 Timothy 3, 14 to 17, which I quoted in my opening statement, is for the end of making us like Jesus. And that's how every text functions with that authority. I also affirm a concept of biblical inerrancy, uh, but with respect to the divine authorial intent. So every text within scripture is there for a particular reason, and we can function to learn from it, uh, that doesn't mean that it is always in accord with the human redactor or author of the original text, because God's intent with the text can differ from the human author. And I could give many examples of that if we need to provide any later on. But a quick example would be, for example, Hosea, out of Egypt, I called my son, Matthew, uh, speaking with now with God's authority, says this additional meaning was as a uh, Christological prophecy. Okay, so... Um, CJ said that, well, um, these are different views of, of the violence against the Canaanites are repeated in several places. That's in and of itself not really relevant to the arguments I gave. Um, he refers to haram um, and the related word harem, which is to give over to destruction. Uh, and yes, it is quoted in passages, for example, Deuteronomy 20, 16 and 17. Uh, something important to understand about the concept of harem, which is kind of ironic within this uh, greater sphere of discussion. And that is that it is a sacrificial concept, the idea of giving over to God the spoils of war. Uh, and that includes just giving over to God and thus destroying all the material accoutrements of Canaanite society, the animals of Canaanite society, the human beings of Canaanite society, and only uh, leaving behind the trees, interestingly, in Deuteronomy 2018. And of course, when an Aachen fails to do that, then he is judged by God because he held back something within this prophetic offering, or sorry, within the sacrificial offering. Here's the irony then, that the Israelites condemned the Canaanites for practicing human sacrifice, and yet the very act of haram killing itself is a form of human sacrifice. As Sudanich says in her book, War in the Hebrew Bible, quote, to dissociate the Israelite band from the realm of the sacred and from the concept of sacrifice is to ignore the obvious. In other words, the Israelites punished the Child's, the people committing child sacrifice by sacrificing their children. Uh, so uh, CJ has committed himself by implication to child sacrifice. I, I would want to know what CJ thinks of 2 Kings 3, 26 and 27. In this text, the king of Moab is in battle with the king of Israel, and he sacrifices his firstborn son on the wall uh, in order to have his deity accept the child sacrifice and then win over the, the Israelites. And then this is what we read. Uh, the fury against is Israel was great, and they withdrew and returned to their own land. So here's the question for CJ. Does his straightforward literal approach to this commit him to saying that the God of the Moabites existed and accepted the sacrifice? Or does he believe Yahweh accepted the child sacrifice of the king of Moab? Uh, my point, of course, would be that we need to approach these texts from a greater theological perspective through Christ. 
Uh, now, interestingly, CJ says Moses is a representative of the law itself. Yes, and I would say that is precisely what Jesus is doing when he refers to Moses. He's referring to him for his symbolic import and also for the fact that people did commonly believe Moses had written or overseen the, the law, the Torah. It doesn't mean that that was what he was teaching. That was what we call the message incident principle in hermeneutics. It was incidental to the main points Jesus was teaching on. For example, in Luke 20, when Jesus uh, rebuts the Sadducees who said there is no resurrection, he refers to the law of Moses. But his point is not to teach that Moses wrote the law. It's to teach that there is a resurrection. All right. Um, CJ did not uh, respond to the arguments I gave, the historical argument. He said he disagrees with the consensus of scholars. Fair enough. I'd like to hear his reasons why. At very least, I hope he could concede that there are good reasons that the majority of scholars have for placing these texts as having been written centuries later. He also didn't respond to the archaeological problems with the, the Canaanite narrative within Joshua, such as the fact that the walls of Jericho were destroyed two centuries before the events allegedly happened within the narrative. He didn't address the moral argument, so CJ is committed to endorsing genocide, uh, the slaughter of people in order to wipe out their entire society and their cultural identity, just like what happened in Rwanda in 1994. I don't think Christians should be defending moral atrocities in Jesus's name and genocide. That's always a bad look. Um, in terms of Christological, I don't think he really addressed all the texts that I raised, beginning with the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, it has been said, hate your enemy. I say, love your enemy. He overturns uh, the Lex Talionis, an eye for an eye. He commends continued forgiveness. When he is on the cross, he looks at those that are crucifying him and says, Lord, forgive them for they know not what they do. This is the radical teaching on which Christianity was built. Um, and I think what CJ is doing is really diminishing the value of looking at the entire scripture through a radical Christological viewpoint. Okay. Um, also in terms of biblically, I, I think he has not begun to address the point I was making that Paul explicitly says that this is what scripture is for. It is to make you like Jesus. And if you are committed to dehumanizing entire people groups like the Canaanites and trying to say it's okay to, to butcher children uh, and butcher infants and butcher the elderly, um, and you have to cauterize your feelings of mercy and compassion against them, I think what you're doing is fundamentally at loggerheads. It's fundamentally inconsistent with, with that which Jesus has called us to do, which is indeed to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. So it seems to me that CJ has not offered strong arguments in his opening or in his rebuttal. And um, I confess I'm underwhelmed by his responses to my four arguments. I don't think he has really responded to them. Uh, I'll leave it at that. All right, I appreciate that, uh, Randall, with about 30 seconds to spare. So here we go. That, uh, that concludes the opening statements and rebuttals. Great debate so far, uh, gentlemen. Also, I want to remind uh, everybody in the audience, please tag me with your questions uh, for the audience Q&A portion. So we're now moving into the cross-examination. We've got uh, we've got around each uh, 10 minutes, which we will be starting with uh, CJ. CJ has uh, 10 minutes to ask uh, Randall questions. What I'll do once we hit the nine-minute mark, I will kind of let you know, uh, gentlemen, that uh, you, you need to start wrapping it up. So that being said, um, whenever you're ready, the floor is yours. CJ, go ahead. Absolutely. Thank you. 
Um, so uh, a couple things definitely that we'll want to touch on here, but obviously I want to save some of them for you just because we have, you know, both have a, a back and forth, right? So uh, first thing I want to address is the issue of uh, inspiration. Um, so I, I did point out inspiration as we understand it, uh, namely to suggest that when typically when we are uh, talking about uh, inspiration in more conservative Christian circles, what we mean is that these uh, scriptures were not only inspired of the Holy Spirit, uh, but that the author uh, in many instances, if not all instances, actively knew they were writing scripture. And uh, in the case of uh, prophets like Moses would in fact be receiving direct revelation uh, from God. Um, now you wouldn't think that the text is inspired in that way, would you? Okay, so I I teach, um, when I teach systematic theology and I go through major models, I'm not familiar with that as one of the models. So typically the two models that are most common among conservative Christians, evangelicals, fundamentalists, would be either a dynamic plenary inspiration view where God inspired the, the very propositions, but not necessarily the words that were issued. And then a, a verbal plen a plenary inspiration view where God inspired the actual words that were uttered. But that does not include with it any entailment as to the psychology of the person uh, so that they need not have been aware that they were writing something that would later be incorporated within a divine canon. That's just not part conventionally of what is understood to be inspiration. Um, well, now, the awareness part isn't, just to clarify, the awareness part isn't so much the important thing as much as it is that the belief is that uh, Moses, that Matthew, that Daniel, etc., right, uh, wrote this actually by divine revelation, right? Um, that this wasn't uh, like a text that just happened to have some truths from God or something along those lines, but that they were actually receiving revelation from God as prophets. Uh, in some instances, in the case of Moses, even speaking to God. Yeah, so, well... Um, in my view, so I would hold to a view, and which I defend at length in my book, much like what Nicholas Wolderstorff develops in his book, Divine Discourse, which has been called an appropriation view. Uh, something similar is um, was argued by William Lane Craig. Like Craig, I hold to a middle knowledge view of, of God, that God knows counterfactuals. And based upon that, God knows what human beings would write under any circumstance and God can actualize, bring about the circumstances in which people in accord with their libertarian free will will write precisely what he wants them to write within that circumstance in accord with their libertarian free will. Um, and then uh, in accord with, with uh, Wolderstorff's account, God then appropriates those words as they are written into his canon of scripture. But I don't bring, as you seem to, any a priori assumption as to what that looks like in terms of the process or the psychology beyond that minimal commitment. But that minimal commitment does mean that I've got plenary divine inspiration and indeed inerrancy with respect to the divine authorial intention of every text. Right. But so you could, I guess, to, to get down to the, the real nitty gritty of what my question is then. So um, you would then concede that, for example, when it says, and the Lord said unto Moses or the Lord said unto Joshua, that basically that that just didn't happen, right? That 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 what we're seeing here is for whatever reason. I'm not saying that it's uh, you know assuming any intent or anything like that, but that that particular event, namely the revelation of prophecy to these individuals that is now being communicated to us through this text, didn't occur. And in that in that sense, inspiration is not a, is not occurring in the Old Testament, right? So you're conflating at this point hermeneutics and a theory of inspiration. I gave you my theory of inspiration, which is divine plenary inspiration. 
in accord with libertarian free will in which God appropriates the word so that every word is in scripture that God wants to be in scripture. Now, what you do and how you interpret various descriptions of God's actions in history as described in the narrative, such as God said to Moses this, that's a hermeneutical question. I mean, a person could say to you, well, if it literally says that God said this to Moses, then there must have been a vocalization and God must have vocal cords. And then you could be the liberal uh, on this schema because you're denying what the text plainly says. But that's a hermeneutical question. That's not a question with respect to theory of inspiration. Uh, well, I think the reason why I would disagree mainly is because what we have presented in the Bible, when we have somebody who's a prophet actually like literally dictating what the Lord has told them, uh, and, and I would assume audibly, I don't think that necessarily implies vocal cords just because we have vocal cords considering an omnipotent being, but I would assume audibly, though the Bible does say that Moses knew God face to face, and, and in fact Jesus is compared to Moses, not the other way around, when it comes to knowing the Lord face to face. Um but what I would say here in this instance is what we have presented in Scripture is that these things are actually being dictated from the lips of God. And then whether or not Moses wrote the text himself uh, in some nucleal nucleus form, he's communicated this and passed it down throughout the generations, bare minimum. Right. And that that's what, what we have as the Torah today. Okay, um, I, this is You should be asking me questions, though, at this point. Right. So. Maybe right. So my point, so my question. question though is, you would you would say that did not occur, right? So, in what instance do we have a a system like like how can you say that this is truly inspired if not what the Bible is declaring here? Because the Bible says it's by divine revelation. Okay. Right? So I gave you an example in Exodus thirty-two, where God says He's going to destroy all the Israelites, and He regrets that He had ever covenanted with them, and then Moses says, "God, you can't do that," and then says, "God repents." Now, you have two choices here. You can say either that describes what happened, newspaper account, God just was going to kill the Israelites. Moses managed to change his mind, in which case God can change his mind, in which case God's not omniscient, in which case God's not in control of his emotions. Or you can recognize that you've got theological a theological grid and framework that you follow when you interpret the narrative. And I hope that you do the latter and that you don't have a view of God that is basically like a glorified human being who can lose their temper and fly off the handle, that you recognize those are anthropopathisms and anthropomorphisms. Um, and also be wonder from your perspective, as I mentioned, 2 Kings 3.27 seems to be pretty clear that when the king of Moab offered his son on the wall and sacrificed his son, the battle immediately turned against the Israelites. So was it the king of Moab's God who was now fighting defeating the Israelites, in which case we have not monotheism? Or was it Yahweh who accepts the human sacrifices of other kings? And I hope, again, that you're going to look for another option, but you're going to do so based upon theological assumptions that uh, prevent you from reading the straight, literal meaning, the plain reading, as you've been trying to defend. Uh, well, I, I actually don't think that's true in either instance, and I'll, and I'll just be brief with it. So with the instance of uh, Hamash, um, I think that that is an instance, frankly, of kings just recording history. We see judges do this frequently. We see, Like, for example, when judges records the, the cut-up of the woman into 12, right? Uh, I won't get into detail, right, because it's a cross-examination. But the point just being that it records things that did occur. In other words, the child did get sacrificed, and then the Israelites did lose the battle. But it's not actually making any claim about 
what exactly are the implications there? See, Teams like judges. That point, at that point, I think you're just engaging in special pleading because that's not true. Let me explain yeah, why. Uh, no, let well, me, hang on. No, let me explain why. No, no, no. This is my opportunity to respond to you, right? Right, what, but, but, but you, you have to you understand something about my point really quick, which is that no, nowhere in kings and nowhere in judges do we hear the phrase and, for example, Samson was commanded such and such from God, right? And then he wrote it down. That's Yeah, if I can just respond quickly, the text says that the Moabites were losing the battle. The king in desperation offered his son as a sacrifice in order to defeat the Israelites. And then immediately the battle turns against the Israelites and they're defeated. Now you can say, well, okay, it, it, it's, it's like it shows the one billiard ball hitting the other one, but it doesn't actually show the other one being moved by that one. It just shows the other one starts moving. But anybody who reads the text in the natural causal sequence will conclude that either Yahweh or the Moabite deity accepted this sacrifice and turned the battle against the Israelites. And you still haven't addressed Exodus 32. I think that you are actually uh, far less literal in your reading than you probably recognize, in which case I think you're inconsistent. Well, I, I think with the with the case here, again, you have to understand that when it comes to, and it's not just kings, you also see the same in Chronicles, we see the same in Judges, there's numerous other books of the Bible like this, where uh, what is being recorded is simply what occurred. It's not what the Lord thinks about what occurred. DJ, I'm just going to jump in here because you have a minute and 30 seconds. So my recommendation would be, um, you know, rapid fire questions for the last minute and 30 seconds and then give, uh, you know, uh, Randall a bit of time to answer each one. So go ahead if you, if you want to kind of wrap that up and then into a question. Uh, go ahead. I'll start the time. Well, so here's a couple things, actually. So um, and the simple yes or no will suffice for these because I'll be making a point with the collection of them. Um, would you agree that the death penalty is in a perfect world, not something that would occur? Correct. Yeah. Uh, would you agree that predatory animal behavior is something that in a perfect world would not occur? Correct. Would you agree that, uh, going to war is something that in a perfect world would not occur? Correct. And would you agree that crucifixion is something that in a perfect world would not occur? Correct. Okay, so in all four of these things, we have God directly taking credit in the Bible, in Scripture, for them occurring. But we would agree, and I assume it's based on our understanding of Scripture, because that's where we both are saying we get our morality from, right? That these no, things no. would be... I didn't say that at all. So you, you don't get your morality from Scripture? Uh Okay, let, that's the question. I'll take that as the question. Um, so the question the question is, do you get all your morality from Scripture? Of course not. And Scripture doesn't even say that you should get all your morality from Scripture. I mean, I'm a moral epistemologist. Uh, the Christian tradition is very strong on concepts such as natural law theory, that there's a general revelation. As Paul says in John, or sorry, as in, in Romans 2.15, there is a law written on the hearts. Our conscience is also bearing witness. So we have natural knowledge of the moral law. Every human being does. You don't get all your morality from the Bible. Of course not. Okay, that mo you do realize that the moral law is there, CJ, um, referring to Mosaic law, right? I'm just going to jump in there, CJ. We'll give uh, Randall the last word there in terms of answering the question because that is 10 minutes. So um, what we're going to now do is uh, hand it over to uh, Randall. You have 10 minutes to um, ask CJ questions whenever you're ready. All right. Uh, Okay, CJ, you said that you have good reasons for rejecting the consensus of scholars, both on the dating of the Deuteronomic history, that it was likely written during the period of the Josianic reforms and the exile and post-exilic period. And also, I guess that you have good reasons to reject 
the the weight of evidence in terms of archaeology that goes against the events having occurred. Uh, so go ahead and share what that information is. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'll deal with the archaeological one first because that one is uh, much easier. Um, because the the, the so-called weight of evidence against the conquest of Canaan just simply doesn't exist, frankly. Uh, and this has been demonstrated numerous times by numerous other uh, scholars who do actually have uh, PhDs and things like that and have done the relevant uh, research. Sorry, my dog's kind of freaking out. Uh, for example, Dr. Bryant Wood uh, has done, uh, and actually John Garstang before Kathleen Kenyon. In fact, it's interesting, there's been four excavations at Jericho, two before Kenyon, one after, and three of them concluded that the uh, biblical narrative matched and only Kenyon, an atheist and a lesbian, said that it didn't. I personally find that to be kind of odd. Um, but nonetheless, we do actually have evidence that around the 1400s BC, there was a destruction by fire in Jericho. Uh, and that lines up perfectly with what we have in the Bible. Uh, Kathleen, in fact, it's interesting. Kathleen Kenyon herself actually changed what she said. She originally said, no, see, the evidence is for 1400. And the Bible says 1250, going off of a, a late date with Ramses. She then, when realizing that Garstang and biblical literalists had always said 1400, said, actually, I meant it was 1550, right? And so Kathleen Kenyon herself can be demonstrated to, quite frankly, be a liar. Um, so there's absolutely no reason whatsoever to accept any, any of the things that she has put forward in regards to Jericho. She's just flatly wrong, and numerous other scholars have demonstrated this. Uh, there's also evidence of conquest at other places, for example, Hatsor. Uh, there is evidence of uh, conquest at Lachish. Uh, we have evidence of conquest at two different uh, potential eye locations, which I just certainly find interesting, um, and so on and so forth. So with that, I just, I just frankly, flatly dismiss it as uh, special pleading on the part of people who have a vendetta against the scriptures and clearly demonstrate that they do. Uh, because can, I, again, can, I, can I follow up to that, and then you could talk yeah. about the dating of, of Joshua? Okay. Absolutely. Okay, so... Um, it seems, first of all, that that you are engaged, and she can respond to this in an ad hominem, because you referred to quote an atheist and a lesbian, and also anyone who disagrees has a vendetta. So, how would you um, respond to the objection that you're engaging in ad hominem, and you're also engaging in a selection bias when you choose the scholars that you like, uh, and you're going to reject the vast consensus of scholarship in, in in favor of the scholars that give you the opinions that validate your previous assumptions uh yeah well in the case of the atheist one that's not an ad hominem it's simply just understanding where she's coming from and her presuppositions uh it, it does have to be noted again that there has been four total excavations two before her and one after she is the only one who has come to the conclusion that this doesn't actually line up with the scriptural narrative and she's the only one who has an explicit agenda that goes in a what you would call liberal quote unquote direction that's certainly not a coincidence um, I, and it's not an ad hominem either, because ad hominem is an attack on character that is specifically meant to bypass the arguments. What I am saying is that there is clear presupposition uh, that is seen here, and the evidence bears that out. Uh, I also pointed out that she was caught lying. She originally said 1400 BC, and that this didn't work because the, she was taking the late date of the Exodus, and it was 150 years after that point, which would be 1250. Once it was pointed out that Garstang had always said 1400 BC, that a literal reading of scripture was 1400 BC, she then changed it to say sometime between 1550 and 1500 BC, which by the way, we have no record of the Egyptians actually moving into Canaan at that time, especially not the Judean region of Canaan, which they virtually never conquered. And I would just kind of leave it at that. Okay, um, 
it's it's one thing to say somebody's wrong or change their view. It's another thing to say they're lying and to be able to establish intent. But I'll go on to the uh, next question again, which is related to the late to the early dating of Joshua and Deuteronomy. Absolutely. Um, so the first thing is that I trust scripture. Uh, scripture claims that this is um, in numerous instances, not just within the Torah itself, but <clears throat> in numerous instances that this is at a bare minimum. Uh, at uh, going back to Moses, uh, I personally take an opinion that Moses probably wrote something like a proto Torah. That would be the uh, majority of it, potentially all of certain books like Genesis, and that it was edited at a later time, specifically because the Bible actually says that. Um, the Bible, for example, says that Joshua wrote in the Book of the Law. Um, so, uh, if we're just taking the Bible in a straightforward, uh, literal reading, it appears bare minimum that Moses wrote the law and that Joshua added to it. Um, but what that what that suggests for me is that this text goes all the way back to 1400 BC, because again, a literal reading would say that it goes back that far. Uh, another thing I would point out when it comes to um, you know evidence for taking a late date is in a lot of different instances. For example, in the Song of Moses, uh, which I believe is Exodus 15, if I'm not mistaken, uh, you have language that is incredibly archaic, uh, definitely before the year 1000, and even the secular scholars will acknowledge. That, uh, for example, instances like the Song of Moses in Exodus 15 indicate a very, very old textual tradition here, which allows me to, again, say bare minimum what the scripture suggests is true, namely that the core nucleus of this, which I would suggest is probably the law and overviews of what exactly happened um, with additions, probably from Joshua. And I would make and this is something we can't unfortunately get into, but I do happen to believe Samuel might have added some stuff as well. Um, but that's obviously something that is a, a theory for a different time. The point just being that um, there's clear consistency in Scripture and also just in the textual evidence itself. Okay. You said, I quote, I trust Scripture. And you afterwards said, quote, if we take it in a straightforward, literal meaning. Uh, so how would you respond if someone says there's a difference between trusting Scripture and trusting one's interpretation of Scripture? Uh, and that it seems that what you are doing here is not only trusting Scripture, but you're trusting your, quote, straightforward literal meaning as you understand it as a reader yeah i'd say a couple things the first thing is that scripture is not like any other book uh, so for example if i were to quote the epic of gilgamesh um you really should have an understanding of the historical context you probably should have an understanding of certain babylonian or sumerian actually would be more accurate customs maybe sumerian terms uh maybe who certain sumerian kings and mythological uh, creatures and people and all that kind of stuff it would help right to understand in other words because it's a text that's actually um, not revealed to any people at any time, but was simply the product of a certain culture at a certain time, right? But scripture is not that way. Uh, scripture is the divine inspired inerrant word of the living God that is for all peoples at all times, at all places. I should be able to understand scripture just as well as a 16th century Irish peasant farmer who doesn't even know how to spell his own name. And, and in fact, one of the evidences you see in that is the fact that very often translators, right? They will, these guys who are translating the Bible, um, will spell names and pronouns and other things like that wrong three different times on the same page, right? In other words, it wasn't, we never even had an understanding that the scribes had to be super geniuses. They okay. just had to know how to translate it correctly. Uh, we'll have to move right? on. Um, I'll just have to say that that's not the doctrine of Protestant doctrine of perspicuity as you've described it, uh, which is, is very different than, than any text just having a plain reading accessible to the average untutored reader. Uh, but I want to talk about morality for a little bit, because you seem to believe that all your moral beliefs are derived solely from Scripture. Um, so is that the case? You believe that? 
Uh, well, so I have to clarify that with uh, something real quick, which is that I do believe that, uh, as you pointed out, there is the uh, law that is written on human hearts, and I do believe that that is written on the heart, and specifically of the believer. I don't think it actually necessarily would apply to everybody. Uh, but though Romans 1 does seem to imply there is an argument from bare minimum creation and potentially morality as well uh, that all people understand. Okay, but That being in, said, in, though. In, Helen, Romans chapter 2, Paul is addressing Jews and Gentiles and says when Gentiles do by the by. Uh, when they follow the law written on their hearts because they don't have access to the law, they are a law unto themselves. Their conscience is also bearing witness. So that's a universal. That's not just talking about Christians or Jews. Uh, well, so I, the response that I would kind of bring up to that is I don't think that that is necessarily what Paul is referring to, uh, specifically because we see in uh, Old Testament prophecy, like, for example, when Jeremiah says, I will write the law on your hearts, he's talking specifically about people who are um, believers of Yehovah, right? He's not talking about the non-believers uh, or the goyim as Je as Jeremiah would understand it, Let's right? Let's stick with Romans 2. Uh, well, I would say that Romans 2 has to be consistent with what Jeremiah said. So we can't pit scripture against scripture. Uh, clearly, in my opinion, what is be what is actually being communicated here, number one, uh, Paul is obviously setting out a, a polemic, which I said, like I said, I think can be uh, made an argument from morality, but also an argument from creation that all people know God exists. And number two is we see all throughout Romans, uh, Paul is setting up a polemic against Jews that say Gentiles are not able to be Christian. Uh, and we see that language continue on throughout the entire book. Okay, uh, do I have time for a quick one? Sure, yeah, go ahead. Okay, so um, Joshua 10, 13, here's an example. Um, uh, Flanagan and Copan have pointed out that this is in ancient Near Eastern uh, war battle narratives. This is a common motif in uh, extra biblical ones that that the deity uh, made a, gave a longer day so that the the soldiers could win the beat beat the other side in the battle. So the argument being that for the original readers, this would have been recognized as a literary motif and not an actual event. Uh, so do you recognize that fact? And if so, what does that do to your literal hermeneutic? Uh, I would I wouldn't um, disagree that there is certainly uh, similarities in some other ancient Near Eastern stories, uh, but I certainly wouldn't accept that as a fact. No, I, I think that the Bible is quite clear. Now, regardless of how exactly it happened, because I don't know how God did it, uh, he could have done it through some naturalistic means that made it appear that way. I don't necessarily know. But regardless of how it happened, the fact of the matter is there was a day. And this is, this is what I believe, because this is what the scripture plainly teaches. There was a day that was longer than all the other days, and it was noteworthy because Joshua prayed specifically for that. Um, any scholar at all, frankly, who I think has some kind of a argument against that, while I'm certainly able to take them uh, at their, like, as far as, like, reading their work and stuff like that. And I'm actually reading, or not reading, writing a response to Paul Copan currently that I hope to publish. Um I do have to note just from the get-go that even though I'm going to deal with your guys' so-called evidence, we have to understand you've currently left the realm of interpreting Scripture. You're, you're now interpreting Scripture in a way that's clearly false. This is what it says. You're now saying it says something else, even though this is the plain reading of what it says. And again, this isn't just something that's for me. It's for the Hebrew peasant, the Irish peasant, the Swahili peasant, right? Um, it's for all peoples at all places at all times. So it can't be something that we understand like the Epic of Gilgamesh or like the Iliad or like even our own history books. It has to be something that is unique in that fashion. And that's where I'd end. All right. Well, All right. I
I appreciate that. That was roughly, uh, I think there's an echo from your end, CJ, uh, but that typically happens when you're using the um, laptop mic. So that's all good. Uh, that was roughly about a, an 11 minute cross examine. A fascinating discussion, uh, gentlemen, uh, CJ and Randall. I re really appreciate that. The audience uh, is definitely loving, loving this debate. So that being said, uh, we are going to move into the five minute closing statements uh, to the audience. Uh, any last minute questions, please tag me because in roughly 10 minutes, we are moving on to the 25 minute audience Q and A. So CJ, uh, my good man, whenever you're ready, you have uh, you have five minutes. Yeah, thank you. Um, so there are a couple things that I would want to say. Um, first things first, as I always do, uh, at the end of these debates, I want to go ahead and turn everybody's attention to Proverbs 27, uh, which says that um, we are to let our bragging come from not our own mouths, but from somebody else. So if you guys thought I did a good job, please go ahead and let me know yourselves. And also that iron sharpens iron. And as such, so do friends sharpen each other. So if I didn't do such a good job, go ahead and, uh, you know, let me know. Give me the criticisms, all that kind of stuff. Certainly want to hear that. Um, in conclusion, the things that I would say are um, me and Mr. Rouser are in agreement on one thing, namely that the scripture certainly does communicate that God um, ordered the uh, destruction of the Canaanites. It appears to me, if I'm understanding correctly, where we disagree is whether or not the scripture is actually um, describing for us what it appears to be describing, which is God actually saying these things to some person, whether it be um, uh, Joshua or Moses, right? And then those people actually communicating that to us and us getting that passed down over time. Uh, or if there is some sort of a uh, literary appropriation, as he was saying, uh, to the text, um, where it, it's more uh, God actually using these stories uh, from this particular place and time. And of course, doing so in a way where everything is written exactly how he wants it. I don't want to misrepresent the argument, um, but not necessarily... Um, actually revealing himself personally and dictating anything to these prophets as the scripture seems to communicate to us. Um, again, I would point out why I think that that is an incredibly big deal when you look at some of the things that our faith is certainly based on. For example, uh, it is said that Moses, or excuse me, that Jesus is the prophet like unto Moses. By the way, you got, this is a pretty awesome thing to consider. Moses is not the prophet like unto Jesus. Jesus is the prophet like unto Moses. That's a pretty amazing thing to, to have for a title, right? That the Lord himself actually seems to uh, suggest is yours. Um, and yet we effectively rob Moses of this title because Moses doesn't even exist. How could Jesus be a prophet like unto Moses if Moses was a prophet that did not even exist? Um, he certainly wasn't somebody who was actually communicating prophecy, who was communicating law, who was communicating scripture, right? Uh, why is Moses a prophet, or excuse me, uh, why is Jesus a prophet like unto Moses? Well, because like Moses, he knew God face to face. So apparently, Jesus is like this fictional character that God knew face to face. That's pretty odd. Uh, how do I know that that's proper interpretation? Because Deuteronomy uh, suggests for us uh, actually going as far as to preempt anybody who would say, hey, this is Joshua. Uh, no, actually, no prophet has arisen like Moses since that time. Somebody who knew the Lord face to face. I believe that's Deuteronomy 34, if I'm not mistaken. Um we also see that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. But if he's the fulfillment of the law, we have, that obviously needs to be uh, something that was passed on to us, that was established as law, that was uh, given importance as scripture, that was given God's explicit blessing and endorsement. How do we get that? We get that through 
Moses and the revelation. And why is that all important, right? Obviously, it's not because Moses himself, but it's because if these things are truly revealed unto the prophet Moses, then scripture is clear. And we agree that scripture is clear. This was a literal judgment against the Canaanites. Now, there's a reason that this is important that we didn't get to address that I want to go ahead and um, point out here today, right? And that is why God would command the slaughter of the Canaanites. Um, the book of, I believe it's Romans, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, but I, I, the exact verse is fleeting me. But Paul tells us that the law is a taskmaster that leads us unto Christ. In other words, it teaches us why we need a savior and also um, the uh, uh, prophecies and so on that we would actually get that uh, Jesus fulfills in typology and, and uh, that he would fulfill and things like that, right? Um, so there's a reason that the slaughter of the Canaanites, the slaughter of the Amalekites, the slaughter of the Hittites, all this different stuff is actually in here, right? Um, you'll notice that the Old Testament actually has a running theme through it of being very brutal, right? Uh, stone to death people who curse their parents, stone to death the adulterer, um, God actually commanding the slaughter of Canaanites, uh, God destroying the entire world with a flood, so on and so forth. Now there's very clear and obvious instances of God's mercy spread all throughout the Old Testament. Don't get me wrong here. But the point is the Old Testament is trying to make something very, very clear to you, which is that God hates, 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 loathes entirely sin. Okay. He doesn't hate sinners. He hates sin. And as the righteous judge, he is not only ready and willing and able, but obligated to destroy sin entirely. Um, bleach is something that can be known for its extreme purity, so much so that it purges anything else. Right? If you want to drop ink, and this will be my last point, if you want to drop ink into a thing of bleach, it will annihilate it entirely, at least from the human perspective. I'm sure scientifically that's not 100% true. Um but at least from the human perspective, annihilated entirely and maintaining its own purity. That is why this is important to talk about. And with that, I yield. Okay. I appreciate it. You just went a few seconds over to be My fair, bad. Randall, right. you, uh, you can do the same if you'd like, you got uh, just a little bit over five minutes. So go ahead. Okay. In this debate, I argued that God did not command the slaughter of the Canaanites to make my case. I conceded for the sake of argument, there is a plain reading of the text, although I did question that later on by pointing out, for example, how even a text like Joshua 10, 13, which seems to be have a plain reading, is in fact not so plain at all when we're not familiar with the original socio-historical and literary context in which it was written. Uh, nonetheless, I conceded that these texts do affirm slaughter. I then noted that belief that God slaughtered the Canaanites is no part of essential Christian belief, and thus one may reject a plain reading uh, about these texts if one has good reason to do so, and I then gave four reasons. The first reason was historical. I pointed out that the Joshua narrative does not correspond in key points of the archaeological or documentary records. Um, in his response, CJ engaged in, I think, an ad hominem against people like Kathleen Kenyon, saying that she's a liar. Um, he referred to lesbians and atheists, and then he selects the scholars that he likes, and he rejects the consensus of contemporary biblical scholarship um, who do see that there is not archaeological evidence supporting that narrative. In terms of the late dating of the Deuteronomic history, he provided no argument as to why it should be dated as such, apart from the fact that the text says Moses wrote it and Joshua, and so it must be so. But of course, that's a hermeneutical assumption. One actually has to look, look at the reasons that biblical scholars date this to the time of the Josianic reforms in the 600s BCE and then the exilic period. 
Uh, he also talked about Moses not existing, but that's a red herring. We're not debating Moses here. Uh, we're debating genocide and slaughter in the, the narrative of Joshua. He never offered a response to 2 Kings 3.27 about human sacrifice, apart from special pleading, saying, well, even though the Moabite king kills his son, sacrifices him, and then the battle immediately turns against the Israelites, it just is unrelated to the fact that he had just sacrificed his son. But in fact, he has a dilemma here. Either the, the Moabite king, the Moabite deity does exist, or Yahweh accepted that sacrifice, neither of which I think is a good option for a Christian. And that's why you should consider a Christological interpretation of these passages. Deuteronomy 20, 16 and 17, I noted that harem haram are texts that refer to giving over to destruction or the ban, as it's sometimes called, but they're also sacrificial texts. And thus the irony of people like CJ is that they're talking about how horrible the Canaanites were that they committed things like child sacrifice when the Israelites are sacrificing the children of the Canaanites in jo in uh, Jericho, in Ai, in Hazor, as they're attacking these cities. There's human sacrifice of the Canaanites. Um, now, he said God hates sin. I agree. God hates sin. And I would hope that we could agree that a practice like genocide is sin. And Deuteronomy 7, Deuteronomy 20 do qualify as genocide. And the narratives of Joshua 6 and 8 qualify as genocide of the most egregious sort, which is the mass slaughter of the target population. Uh, so we should reject that. Um, in terms of morality, then, I pointed out that human beings all have a morality written on their heart, uh, Romans 2.15. And certainly among that is the intrinsic wrong of attacking and slaughtering non-combatants like infants. I mean, the interesting thing about conservative Christians is they seem to recognize it's wrong to kill a fetus in utero. And then for some reason, when that fetus is born and it happens to be a Canaanite, you can chop it up with a sword, which doesn't make a lot of sense to me. In terms of Christology, I don't think CJ really wrestled with the radical way that Jesus challenged preconceived interpretations of the law, such as overturning the lex talionis and eye for an eye and saying, it has been said, hate your enemy. I say, forgive your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. You don't stop forgiving 77 times. And how the narrative of Matthew 15, in a beautiful way, ennobles a Canaanite woman by having her be the one uh, who's the victor in her own story as she responds to Jesus, even the dogs get crumbs from the table, and Jesus embraces and welcomes her, thereby showing the, the inappropriateness of the dehumanizing rhetoric that Israelites had long used against the Canaanite people. Finally, as Paul talked about in 2 Timothy 3, the point of Scripture is to make us like Jesus. And when we spend our time defending war crimes and moral atrocities, like the mass slaughter of civilians, hacking up infants. I mean, I want you to think about what that is like, to chop up an infant that is being held in his arms by his mother as she's weeping. And the Israelites are doing that in the name of God. Do you not see that that is fundamentally incongruous with what it means to be a follower of Jesus, the loving Messiah, who died for the sake of the world? So for those reasons, I believe I've given four good reasons um, from morality, from history, from Christology, and from Scripture why we should not believe that God commanded the slaughter of the Canaanites. All right, perfect timing. I appreciate that, uh, Randall. That concludes the concluding statements, and uh, that concludes the debate, guys. Fascinating and fantastic discussion. Uh, time definitely has flown by. A lot of great points discussed. So we're going to move into the 25-minute uh, audience Q&A. Let me get the timer going. Um, 
what we usually do here, uh, gentlemen, is whoever the question is for, we're going to make sure that they get the last word. For for example, if the question is for Randall, uh, CJ, you can you know give a minute worth of, of input, but then we'll hand it back to Randall for final response. That way we can move along smoothly. So um, I apologize if some of these questions were, were answered in the debate, uh, but I've gathered them in the side here. So we're going to go all the way back. Uh, to roughly the beginning uh, with a question from C Science Film Labs. And this question is for you, Randall. Uh, he asks, isn't there evidence that the Jericho site was destroyed in the past by an earthquake? Oh. Uh, Randall, you're on mute. All right, there we go. Sorry, guys. All right, no so it is a seismically active region and Many people have proposed that there was an earthquake around 1550 BC that destroyed the wall. So that's certainly a possibility. It's not my area. I'm not an archaeologist. Uh, I can simply report what a consensus of archaeologists have said about the matter. And that certainly is a possibility. I appreciate that response, Randall. I appreciate the question. C Science Film Labs. Uh, CJ, if you wanted to add anything uh, real quick, go ahead. Yeah, um, so there does appear to be some evidence of a earthquake around uh, the uh, in between like 1550 and 1500 era, um, not on either of the extremes there, but like in the in between. Uh, and some people have suggested that could potentially have been the cause not only for uh, the destruction of Jericho, but also potentially the damming of the River Jordan. Um, I don't personally buy that for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's uh, not actually in the right time. Uh, the Bible does give us a very clear chronology. I think people kind of take that for granted. Um, but the Bible is, is, you know, you can be wrong within potentially a couple of decades at most due to things known as generational slip and uh, trying to make sure you get the right regnal years for different kings, right? Because you're going to have things like co-regency and stuff like that. But when you put all the uh, chronology together in the Bible, you get something like plus or minus 20 years, 1446 is when the Exodus happens, which means plus or minus 20 years, 1406 is when the conquest would happen. So that's 100 years off. That would be kind of like trying to look for 9-11 in World War One, right? It wouldn't work, archaeologically speaking. Um, so I, I don't I don't think there's any merit to it as far as the Bible's concerned, although the event did probably happen. All right. I appreciate that response, CJ. Uh, Randall, if you wanted uh, the final word there. Oh, I think you're on mute again, Randall. Okay, I'm not. You're not. I'm gonna keep on top of this from now on. <laughs> no worries. You're doing great. <laughs> um, well, the, the one thing I would say is is that to the like the the historical question I began with it. It's somewhat of a secondary question because even if you could establish, okay, th these cities were destroyed here. It is and it was congruent with the timeline. And and I we didn't talk about I, but I is another big problem. Uh, the tell in I does not support the destruction layers. But even if it did it would still not tell you that God had commanded it, right? It would only tell you that there was a battle at this time. But I don't think you even get that far that, that God commanded it based upon the evidence. All right, I appreciate that uh, response from the both of you, CJ and Randall. So here's the next question that comes in from Kevin Blah. I appreciate the question, Kevin. This one is for uh, Randall, for you again. He asks, when God commanded that the Amalekites be killed, is that meant to be taken literal? So the Amalekites, 1 Samuel 15, is another case of an atrocity, a, a case of genocide, because 
Uh, God is described there as commanding the destruction and eradication of including infants, all the Amalekites. Another one is the Midianites in Numbers 31, where God commands all of the Midianites, except for the virgin girls, to be slaughtered. Uh, and then they are kept, the virgin girls are kept for the Israelite army. Uh, now, that is very much like what we would today say happened in Boko Haram when they would come into a village in northern Nigeria and slaughter all of the villagers and then take all the girls for themselves. And we call that sex slavery. So the Bible has a lot of moral atrocities that it describes to uh, the ancient Israelites. And so a Christian does have to read them. Now, the, the framework that I gave for reading those is to recognize that you interpret Christologically, uh, that you don't affirm things that are fundamentally inconsistent with who are we are called to be in Christ and uh, with the moral knowledge that we have written on our hearts. So I would not accept that, that God uh, literally commanded those things. I mean, I would say that there's another problem there, uh, that Samuel, again, is a text that was likely written in the 600s BC, so 600 years after the purported events. So from a historical ground, you should also be very skeptical. Um, but none of those issues have anything to do with Christian discipleship. I do think that Christians get into trouble when they try to defend literal historical readings of those texts which are fundamentally incompatible with Christian discipleship. I appreciate that answer, Randall. Uh, CJ, go ahead if you wanted to make a few points. Uh, yeah, so I would say um, I, I think absolutely that uh, God did literally command that. I, I think the text uh, almost preempts anybody who would say otherwise by uh, using this as the justification for Saul um, being removed from the uh, monarchy, right? And actually having the kingdom taken away from him um, and, and given to David. Uh, and it's interesting, right? Because 1 Samuel 15, it's almost as if 1 Samuel 15 expected that people would not want to take this literally and so provided within itself an apologetic. Um, maybe a polemic would be a better actual description of it. But nonetheless, uh, when Saul comes in and says, well, I did do what you did. I, in other words, I conquered them, but not taking what you said literally. Uh, because I still have some of the sheep and I still have the king. Samuel, this prophet who's receiving direct revelation from the Lord, right, who's literally speaking to him audibly, if the scripture is to be believed as far as prophets are concerned, right, um, says, no, actually you didn't because I hear the bleeding of sheep and I see the king right here, right? And he actually chastises Saul for it. And again, there's, there's consequences for this. Um, now, what I would say to this is, while I certainly understand that this is, absolutely brutal, something that we would look at as an atrocity. Um, what I would point out to people, number one, is that, uh, as I pointed out before, with things like uh, predation and warfare and um, punishing people with, with the death penalty and things like that, uh, these are all different things that even in the Bible, you would come to the conclusion that they're not good. The Bible says that you should forgive your enemies. The Bible says that you should forgive 70 times 70. The Bible says that you shouldn't take human life because it's made in the uh, image of God. The Bible says that you should be kind to your animals, but that the mercy of the cruel is, uh, or the mercy of the wicked is cruelty, right? Um, the point being that all of these different things do still happen sometimes by the command of God and by the command of other uh, people in righteous situations that are not necessarily divine because we live in a fallen world. I'll end it with this really briefly. People often ask the question in philosophy and ethics, right? Uh, well, you have the Nazi knock on your door, right? And you have an ethical dilemma. Well, is it wrong to lie or is it wrong to reveal that the, there's people underneath the, um, you, know, the you know, floorboards or whatever? Um, the fact that you would ask that question 
means that you already have accepted that it's wrong to lie to the Nazi. That's the point of a dilemma is that you have two bad options, right? No, neither option is good. In other words, you have recognized it's bad to tell a lie. It's simply worse to not preserve life. That's the same kind of situation you have going on here. It is bad to have the complete and just, uh, total destruction of nations. It is unfortunately worse to let w wicked nations continue upon the earth and be wicked to the righteous. All right, well, we're going to hand it over to uh, Randall. It was your question, so you get the last word there. Yeah, um, I don't think it's it's bad to not lie to Nazis. Um, so I think uh, that CJ is incorrect there. Uh, I think that it's morally justified to lie to Nazis if you're hiding juice in your basement. Um, maybe that's you could say that's a side issue, but it, the whole point of that is it's, it's a dilemma, but we do have nested priorities and the protection of human life certainly trumps the uh, truth telling. So truth telling is, is in all things being equal obligation, not an absolute obligation. So I think that's just mistaken. Um, one of the things that bothers me about these conversations is people just sort of blithely talk about, did God, did he not really command um, the slaughter of the Amalekites? And people get kind of uh, worried that God might have actually commanded the slaughter of infants and small children. And I don't think that people have really begun to reflect on what genocide looks like. So I'm just going to read an excerpt. And I, as I talk about at length in my book on the horrors of Rwanda, an excerpt from um, Romeo Dallaire, who was head of UN peacekeeping forces in Rwanda, and then apply this in your own mind to the Amalekites. So across the street from the mission, an entire alleyway was littered with bodies of women and children near a hastily abandoned school. As Brent and Stefan were standing there trying to take in the number of bodies, a truck full of armed men roared by. Brent and Stefan decided to head for the church. Stefan went inside while Brent stood by the door to cover him to keep the armored personnel carrier in sight. They confronted a scene of unbelievable horror, the first such scene the UN witnessed, evidence of the genocide, though we didn't yet know to call it that. In the aisle and on the pews were the bodies of hundreds of men, women, and children. At least 15 of them were still alive, but in a terrible state. The priests were applying first aid to the survivors. A baby cried as it tried to feed on the breast of its dead mother. That's what you're talking about. When you ask, did God not command the slaughter of the Canaanites and the Amalekites and their infants be chopped up as sacrifices to him? And I think people really need to come to terms with the moral implications of what they're committing themselves to. All right. I appreciate that response there, uh, Randall. So we're moving on to the next question. And this question comes in from Danny. Uh, this one I've put up on screen. Um, this question is for, okay, he specified below. It's for you again, Randall. So he asks, do you think that part of why people interpret the verse in the way that CJ does is a result of accepting divine command theory? Well, I cannot speak for CJ, but I accept a divine command theory in ethics, but we have to understand what that is. A divine command theory of ethics is properly understood as a theory of moral obligation. So what am I morally obliged to do? And the range of possible commands that God can issue to creatures is determined by his nature. So the good and the good, the moral good is identical with God's nature. And that delimits the possible range of moral obligations God can issue to us. Uh, so I do not believe that we could ever have a moral obligation to participate in the genocide, the mass slaughter of infants and children and the elderly and the handicapped. Uh, so I hold to a divine command theory of ethics, but it is one understood in terms of moral obligation. There are some people uh, who have defended a more radical divine command theory 
uh, where anything at all could be commanded as morally good. There is no fixed moral good uh, to delimit the possible range of God's commands. And I think that that's a terrible view because that completely destroys your moral knowledge. Uh, rape and torture could be suddenly morally good because God commanded it, just like uh, infant sacrifice and genocide and so on. All right. Thanks for the question, Danny. And thanks for the answer, uh, Randall. Uh, CJ, we'll hand it over to you if you had a few points you wanted to uh, make. Go ahead. Um, so uh, I will say I do accept uh, divine command theory. Um, now, what what I accept as divine command theory is um, not the same as what a lot of people who I debate with on these channels, although to be fair, I'm sure they aren't using the actual philosophical terms and stuff like that. But a lot of people say that uh, kind of like what Randall was just saying, that basically God's uh, commands are the ultimate source of morality. Um, what I would say is that God's commands are the ultimate source for morality as far as human perspective is concerned, but that God's commands are grounded uh, in a farther in a further source that we may not necessarily be able to perceive, namely his own nature. Um, so I, I can actually back that up with scripture to explain what exactly I mean, which is, um, or in the example I'll give, excuse me, is uh, when God commanded that um, Isaac be sacrificed, right? Now, Abraham is uh, well aware at this point that God is not uh, somebody who's fond of human sacrifice, right? He's also well aware of the fact that God has promised through Isaac um, many uh, descendants, right? That he will be the father of many nations, right? And yet God has given him this command, all right, you sacrifice your son. Now, there's a whole bunch of theological reasons that we could go into as to why that occurred, right? But the point here being, we have a question as uh, ethicists, right, that we could ask here, which is, would it have been right for Abraham to tell God no? And the answer, of course, is no. From a biblical perspective, he obviously was to do precisely what he did, which is go forward with this act, this abominable act that God had told him to go forward with. But also notice that Abraham, trusting in the nature of the Lord whom he knew, uh, is fully aware of the fact that Isaac will be coming back down with him, right? He tells his, um, excuse me, uh, servants, me and the lad will return to you. He also tells Isaac, the Lord will provide a lamb. What's the point? That he is fully aware because he trusts in God that this is a test of some kind. In other words, we see there that uh, functionally speaking, God's commands are the source of morality, but God's commands are based in his nature, um, which means that they're not literally something that's based arbitrarily in his random thoughts. All right. I appreciate those points. CJ, uh, Randall, question was for you. Uh, so go ahead. Uh, just a one thing to, to, to underscore for clarity's sake is that when we talk about God's commands, we're not simply, again, talking about the Bible. The Bible encompasses a literary account of special revelation, although Jesus Christ himself is the apogee or the, the peak of special revelation. But we're also talking about general revelation. Uh, and so when you get into moral epistemology, we talk about conscience or moral intuition or moral perception, which is indeed something that every human being has, except perhaps for psychopaths. A clinical psychopath does not seem to have the same moral perceptual awareness as other human beings. They're not functioning properly. But other human beings have a moral perceptual faculties. Now, they're fallen and imperfect, just like all of our cognitive faculties, but we all have them. And that is one way to perceive or grasp moral obligations. So it's not just through the Bible. I want to be clear about that. 
All right. I appreciate that, uh, Randall. So next question comes in from uh, Jamie Russell. This comes in the form of a super chat. I appreciate the support, uh, Jamie. Um, so his question is, actually, he doesn't specify anybody. So we'll read through it and then we'll see who the question is for. So he says, why must we think A&E stories, ancient Near Eastern stories, with the same motif render the Bible as a literary device? Is it because they appear older? So I'm not sure uh, if this is. I think that's more directed to Randall, honestly. Okay. Uh, so it's motif. Uh, so a, a literary motif, it's like a theme or something within the work. Okay. So he's asking, why must we think ancient and recent stories with the same motif render the Bible as a literary device because they appear older? Um, I don't know if, if I understand that correctly. He's saying, why would we treat the Bible as literature? Um, well, because the Bible is literature. It's it's a diverse collection of literary forms. The Gospels are are a form of Greco-Roman biography. They conform to the standards of biography writing of the first century. The Epistles are a form of letter writing from the first century. Apocalyptic is an intertestamental style of writing that you find reflected in passages like portions of Zechariah, Ezekiel, or of course Revelation, Daniel. Uh, and so on. And then the law and the Proverbs and the Psalms, these are all, they all have their echoes um, in other literary forms in other parts of the world, which is, I think, just a reflection of the fact that there is somewhat of an analogy between thinking about scripture and thinking about Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ incarnated and became a human being and God enters into history and scripture and inscripturates he becomes scripture, right? His will is expressed through scripture and the literary forms that human beings use. And so you can indeed look at and study the Bible as literature. In fact, I have a degree in English literature. And so I certainly had my share of doing that 30 years ago in university. All right. I appreciate the super chat and question, Jamie. I appreciate the response there, Randall. Uh, CJ, go ahead if you had a few points you wanted to make. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that the, the main purpose behind the question is just to say, um, why should we assume that just because two different ancient Near East stories have similar motifs in them, that therefore they may not be literal or historical? Uh, that, that's kind of the idea that I got behind it. And I, I think that's a perfectly fair question, especially when you consider the fact that uh, in a lot of different instances, um, this is either something that you would expect, this kind of a motif, right? Or it's uh, something that appears to actually be derived from the Bible. And I'll go ahead and give a couple, couple of examples. Um, so, for example, we see in the ancient Near East, there is uh, numerous stories that are very similar to Noah, uh, many of which are verifiably uh, older than Noah, like beyond any shadow of a doubt, right? Um, well, that is something that we would absolutely expect, right? Why is it something that we would expect? Well, because if the flood actually happened and all humans actually had common descent from the survivors of, those, of the flood, then it would be uh, pretty solid to assume that specifically the first civilizations that were populating the world after that flood would have uh, similar legends of that shared uh, event in history, right? <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, so that's a, something that we would expect. You have other examples, like for example, they'll say Sargon of Akkad was placed in a basket uh, and that this basket of reeds was placed into a river. Um, and this is obviously very similar to the Moses story. And we know Sargon of Akkad existed. He existed even by... Uh, the traditionalist understanding of Moses, we would say 1400 BC. Sargon would be 2200 BC. So Sargon's a lot older, older, except 
The source that says he was placed in a basket in uh, in reeds is at its oldest, the seventh century BC, at least from what we seem to have today. Now it could, uh, you know, with the presentation of some new evidence, be shown that it's a little bit older. But the point of the matter is, uh, if we actually do have, as I believe and would argue, um, texts in the Bible that are older than the seventh century, even dating all the way back to the fifteenth century. Um, then it's much more likely that Sargon would actually be based off of Moses in this instance, not the other way around. Uh, you see similar things in Daniel. People will say, well, Zoroastrianism very much seems to be influencing Daniel. Well, if you take the Zoroastrians at their word, Zoroaster received his re uh, revelation at 589. If you take the Bible at its word, Daniel starts actually becoming a uh, Baltazar in 603. So if you just take both religions at their word, it seems more likely the Zoroaster is influenced by Daniel, not the other way around. In other words, in either instance, we see that um, either it's something that we would expect, like a shared uh, event in history, um, that, that all these different people would have the same legends around, or uh, it appears that it's actually based off of the, or I think you could argue at least, that it's actually based off of the Bible, not the other way around. Sorry. Okay. No, I appreciate that. Uh, question was for you, uh, Randall, uh, originally. So go ahead. Uh. All right. So the fact that um, if I followed CG at the beginning there, the fact that you have a biblical text, a text that made it into the biblical canon or the Hebrew scriptures, and you also have a similar text somewhere else that has the same style of writing, that in and of itself is utterly irrelevant to the hermeneutical, hermeneutical question of what type of writing it is. It doesn't, the fact that that writing is found elsewhere doesn't mean you're now predisposed to interpret it literally. It could be metaphor, for example. Um, so I think here that we're at the issue that we need hermeneutics. We need biblical interpretation. And I would commend readers, uh, if you can't take a hermeneutics class, get a good textbook like uh, Gordon Fee and Stort's book, Read the Bible for All It's Worth. It's written a while ago, but it's still a, one of the classic books. They also have a sequel, Read the Bible, Reading the Bible Book by Book, where they help the reader to acquaint themselves with ancient Near Eastern literary forms straight up to New Testament forms. Uh, Genesis, for example, Genesis 1 to 11 is what's commonly called like a proto-history. Uh, there are several things in there, like cosmogony, the origin of everything, etiology, which is uh, an account of the origin of particular types or features of existence, such as the diversity of language. And standardly, you do not interpret cosmogony and etiology in, in a straightforward, wooden, narrative, historical way. That's just, I think, a very naive retrojection on, of contemporary assumptions by a reader today onto these ancient or Eastern books. I think that we need to have uh, some humility to recognize when you're reading a text that was written 2,500 to 3,000 years ago in another language in a foreign culture that you might be missing something. And so you need to take the time to understand the background of the text when you are trying to understand it. All right. I appreciate that, uh, Randall. Great uh, Q&A uh, so far, gentlemen. We're coming down uh, to the last couple minutes here. Uh, really has been a fantastic debate. So thank you, uh, Randall and CJ. So this question comes in from Sentinel Apologetics. He also gives a super chat. I appreciate it. Uh, lots of super stickers, super chats flying in, not really with questions, just uh, showing their support. So I really appreciate that, guys. Uh, God bless you. So this question uh, from Rob is uh, ask uh, Randall Rouser what he thinks of Heiser's work on the Nephilim context behind the Canaanite stuff. All right. I, I re refer to that very briefly in Jesus Loves Canaanites. 
Um, Heiser points out uh, this particular reading interpretation that the Canaanites were just descended from the Nephilim, and so they're not fully human. And that is part of the rationale or the justification for their eradication. Now, uh, the thing that I want to note um, is that in the history of genocide, um, what we commonly have is there are two different rationales, and, and they can be overlapping as well, but they can be independent for genocide. And the first one is the outgroup, the target group is less than human. And the other one is that the target group may be human, but there is some sort of agreement or threat that they present, which can justify their mass eradication. Uh, and so the claim that the Canaanites were not truly human, that they are Nephilim or descended from the Nephilim, and so they can be eradicated, is just one of the standard rationales for genocide. And I would submit that we always ought to be skeptical of attempts to justify genocide. Hitler did the same thing in World War II. He argued that the Jews were a hybrid, that they were not fully human, and so they could be eradicated. And so whether it's Jews or Canaanites, I think we always ought to be skeptical of claims that human groups are less than human so we can mass slaughter them. One more thing I'll note is that in the last few years, and this was reported in, in among other places, the journal Nature, they have identified the uh, descendants of Canaanites by way of DNA in contemporary Lebanon, and they're human. I appreciate that, uh, Randall. I appreciate that uh, question, uh, Rob. Uh, CJ, go ahead if you uh, had anything you wanted to add. Absolutely. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> excuse me. So I actually agree uh, in the in the general uh, sense with uh, Randall here in that um, I think this is pretty standard of people to say, well, you know, they're not actually like fully human, so it's actually kind of okay. Um, and it's interesting to see some somebody who's as respectable as Heiser um, say something like that, obviously. Uh, I would say that I, I have a lot of respect for Heiser in a lot of different ways. Um, but this is certainly one where I think that his whole like obsession with the Nephilim, in my opinion, is, is it borders on the absurd a lot of times. Uh, and this is, I think, one of the clear examples. Um, first and foremost, I think that. Um, Randall Rouser makes the assumption, or excuse me, not Randall Rouser, um, Michael Heiser makes the assumption that um, that the Nephilim are actually uh, a non-human hybrid when that is very much an open question in, you know, when it comes to debates, there's people who take the Sethite line and all that other kind of stuff, right? So there's uh, no real way of saying definitively that that's even, that they even are partially human in the first place. Uh, even if they were Nephilim. The second thing is the Bible talks about the Anakim, right, who are said to be descendant of the Nephilim, but they're a very specific group, and the rest of the groups are not said to be descendant of the Nephilim. So that in and of itself would seemingly uh, debunk that from a biblical perspective. Uh, there's also the point that the Bible is trying to, again, present a narrative that this is how destructive sin is. Sin is so destructive that adorable and innocent animals like lambs have to be slaughtered for the simple purpose of redeeming filthy you. Uh, sin is so disgusting that entire nations, including men, women, children, goats, and the elderly, are wiped off of the face of the planet. Sin is so disgusting that God sends floods to annihilate almost every person on the entire planet. Sin is so disgusting that at some point, people who do not have uh, covering of the blood will be, in my opinion, annihilated. Uh, but the point is punished in an eternal fashion uh, for their wickedness. Sin is disgusting. That's what it is. It's disgusting in me. It's disgusting in you. It's disgusting in all of us. We are all equally 
disgusting before God. That's the whole point of having a savior. And this is actually the nitty gritty of this, right? When we say things like, well, it's hyperbolic, like Paul Copan will say, or I don't think it's um, something that was literally commanded by God, like my um, opponent said today, which, by the way, great debate. I did absolutely love it. I just want to get that clear. Um, or it was actually the Nephilim, like Heiser says, or whatever it happens to be. Right. Effectively, what we're saying is sin isn't actually as bad as God told us it is. Right. And the thing is, it is as bad as God told us it is. It's so bad that he sent his only begotten son to die one of the most miserable and horrific deaths in the world. So that we might be redeemed. And I totally agree that that means that we have to be forgiving of our enemies, that we forgive 70 times 70 and all that kind of stuff. But what is the point? What's the taskmaster? Right. This is what sin is. And with that, I would concede. All right. I appreciate that, CJ. Uh, we're going to hand it over to you, Randall, for some final words there. And then that concludes the uh, audience Q&A. Uh, just a, a quick word uh, for, for Heiser. I mean, my understanding is that he's he's not interested in the ethical question per se, or the systematic theological question, which has really been my purview here tonight, but rather he's interested in providing an understanding of the background, biblical context and worldview, which I think is a very important enterprise. So I don't necessarily disagree with him. I, I say it could be that those were, or should be viewed as the Nephilim within the text. I'm just saying that that wouldn't provide a moral justification for the contemporary reader, uh, because I think we should be duly skeptical of all claims that people groups are somehow subhuman and thus for that reason can be eradicated. I appreciate that. And just to be fair, um, the questioner has uh, just put forth a super chat with a clarification. Um, so I just want to respect his, his donation. I appreciate that, Rob. He says, just to clarify, doesn't Walton take Heiser's Nephilim context, but tweak it with respect to Haram as merely meaning a driving out than killing? I'm not sure if you guys had anything to add to that or I will just say so others have argued as well. Um, so, so you have it within Deuteronomy and this and Joshua, you have two different themes. One theme is destroy them. The other theme is to drive them out of the land. Now, drive them out of the land, of course, it's not genocide in and of itself, but it certainly is ethnic cleansing, which I think is also kind of bad. Uh, we generally try to avoid that. Um, uh, but beyond that, I mean, I, I talk about this at, at significant length within the book, but I would point out that there are texts like uh, Joshua 6.21 um, and Joshua 8.24 and 25, where the text specifically says that all the residents of Jericho, that all the residents of Ai were slaughtered. Um, so we could also get into a conversation about whether those were really cities or whether those were more military citadels or something. That's another conversation. But even so, it specifies women, it specifies children. So there was a civilian population being killed, being slaughtered. And so it's not just driving out. There clearly is mass killing as well. All right, I appreciate I that. Just, sure, go ahead, CJ. Sorry. Uh, I, I would just want to briefly add, uh, the Bible does certainly present that both happened. Um, if and Honestly, if you would just think about it logically, like even if we didn't take this for anything other than just straight history, um, which obviously would not necessarily be, I don't think, um, Mr. Rogers' position. But nonetheless, we would just assume that for a minute, right? Um, if obviously if somebody would, even if they were systematically slaughtering an entire group, considering they all have spears and swords and stuff like that, obviously there would be survivors. Um, and also the Bible itself indicates that not all the groups were de uh, destroyed. Um, so there is uh, certainly a large portion of the population that was driven out, according to a literal understanding. I think God did most of that those survivors of the conquest would exist and also certain cities were not destroyed. Um, 
but there is also a clear motif of uh, haram, which is um, to, of course, ban. And, you know, it's interesting. I, I will say as far as I can't obviously get a full response to the sacrifice thing. So I, I apologize because I should have done that earlier. But one thing I will point out is it is interesting that um, one of the other uh, definitions of haram is devote. Um, because when you do sacrifice something something to the Lord, you utterly destroy it, right? Whether that be the lamb or the first fruits or whatever it happens to be, you put it in the fire and you destroy it completely. Um, so it almost seems to amplify the point. Um, but nonetheless, I, I'd end there. All right. Thanks, All right. CJ. Um, um, any final thoughts or, or final uh, points you wanted to make, Randall, on that one or? Uh, I'll I'll just note the other, I mean, there are other things we didn't talk about, like the extent to which there might be hyperbole, exaggeration for effect and some of that. And that's one of the ways that some scholars reconcile the tension between these two narratives of drive them out versus kill everyone is that um, kill everyone should be understood to be exaggerated war rhetoric. So that's a possibility as well. Now, I argue that even if you grant that there's hyperbole in some of those texts, there's still enough there that it would certainly meet the contemporary legal definition of genocide. But beyond that, I'm just going to say I really appreciated the opportunity to debate. Uh, Donnie, I appreciate you offering the platform. CJ, I think you're, you're a very congenial interlocutor, and I very much enjoyed the exchange. So thanks a lot to both of you. Well, I appreciate that, Randall. Um, it, was, uh, it was a pleasure and an honor to host this debate. Uh, definitely a must-watch debate. Uh, everybody in the chat, uh, we had a great, lively chat uh, tonight. Please share this around. Uh, definitely an awesome uh, exchange of ideas. So, Randall, thanks so much. CJ, thank you so much. And uh, CJ, any final words from you before we uh, shut it down? Yeah, I won't add anything else as far as the topic itself, because I think we've reached a good conclusion there. Uh, but I will say I, I definitely enjoyed the debate. I think it was a good one. Um, uh, Randall, if you're ever interested in the future uh, in doing more, I certainly would be willing. I think this is a topic that's criminally under-discussed. So I, I would very much like to discuss it more. Um, and even though I know we're coming on basically polar opposites, uh, it was as far as the position here is concerned. Um, I, I think it's good for uh, not only edification of ourselves, but the audience as well. So if you're ever interested, definitely do let me know. Uh, but I very much enjoyed it. And thank you also, Donnie, for hosting. My pleasure. My pleasure. Well, thanks, gentlemen, for giving us your time uh, for this for this debate. If you weren't as generous as, as you were, uh, you know, we wouldn't have had this, this epic debate. Two hours really does fly by. So thanks again to everybody in the chat. I appreciate the super stickers, super chats and support. Uh, last thing I'll say, it looks like there is an after show on uh, Praise I Am's channel. So uh, apparently it's going to kick off uh, just within a few minutes after this debate. And so anyways, thank you so much uh, again, Randall and CJ, and thanks to the audience. God bless everybody and standing for truth.